We are going to be in Judges chapter 6. That's where we're going to start. Judges chapter 6. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, uh, go there to Judges chapter 6. We'll put the text up on the screen there because not everybody knows where Judges is. Um, but we'll put the text so you can follow along in there. I don't, I don't know if you've ever had a season in your life where you really didn't know what else to do except just cry out to God. It was a season where like, you know what, I'm, I'm stuck. I'm, I've every other solution that I could think of, every other thing, like answer that I could come up with just is not going to work. I'm all out of resources. And so the only thing left for me to do is just to cry out to God. That's where we're going to find um, the people of God in our, in our story and, and what we're going to see with the story and what maybe you've experienced if you ever had a season like that. I've had those seasons in my life is that God actually uses those seasons to bring us closer to him. That's nothing that we would choose. It's not something that we want. We don't enjoy going through them. But what they can produce and what they can yield in our life, we just learn things about God. We learn things about ourselves that God teaches us that we would have never learned any other way. Uh, so let me just kind of set the stage of what's happening here in Judges chapter 6. So uh, there's a group of people called the Midianites. So uh, if you are familiar with the Old Testament or if you read through the Bible, you're going to see um, there's like these enemies of the people of God that are kind of consistently like hanging around. The Midianites are one of those groups of people. Uh, and they've taken control over the Israelites and they're oppressing them. The thing about the Midianites is they have a massive army. They have a massive army. They have an army of about 135,000 warriors, uh, which in the ancient Near East in this time, that's a massive, massive army. And so they are keeping Israel in line. And one of the primary ways that they're doing that is they're preventing them from having their own food supply. So the Israelites, every time they would try to grow crops, the Midianites would come in and they would wipe out all their crops. So the only way that the Israelites could eat is if they kind of went to the Midianite-controlled grocery store. That was the only way that they had food the Midianites had taken over there. So the people of God are super stressed out. They're incredibly fearful, incredibly anxious over this. So they're in a time, they're in a season where they're crying out to God. Now, here's what's happened. And we talked a little bit about this last night. The Israelites have done this again. They have adopted all of the false gods of the nations around them, which is how the Midianites kind of came in in the first place. So if you remember, we talked last night, God set this people, the Israelites, his people, and he put them into the promised land. While they were there, uh, the Midian, they, they began to adopt uh, the, the idols of the day, and that's what allowed the Midianites to come and take over. Now, God is going to raise up a deliverer. That's really what the book of Judges is all about. And when you're thinking judge, don't think like Judge Judy. Think more like Avengers. The, the book of Judges, is it's a fantastic read if you've never read through it. It's, there's some pretty dark stuff in there. It's pretty crazy. But it, it's, maybe that makes some of you want to read it. But, um, but it, it is, it's a fantastic read. So God raises up uh, kind of peculiar, kind of quirky people um, that they have like these just kind of special things that they're able to do that God empowers them with. He has this like unique group of people, men and women, that God uses to deliver his people from their oppressors. And so that's where we're going to be in Judges chapter 6. Let me pray and just ask God to meet with us and to help us here this morning. Father, we love you. And God, what an incredible uh, just confession for us to raise our voice to and to sing and to be reminded of how much you really love us. And God, uh, there are people in this room who they, if they were honest, they'd say, I've never personally experienced that. And so I pray that today 
maybe even in this moment, God, it'd be the very first time that they experienced a very particular and unique love that you have for them. God, I just pray that by your spirit, you'd apply that to them. Now, there's people in this room um, who they would say, well, you know, at one point I did believe that God loved me, but there's been some things. And if he doesn't love me anymore, I get it. I understand. And God, I just pray that you would just absolutely shatter that lie this morning. God, they would know that you're for them and not against them. God, you sent your son into the world not to condemn, but God, to save. And so I pray, God, um, that they would know that they are loved extravagantly by you. God, there's others who, um, they're just struggling, God, to know how deeply they are loved by you. And so, Father, as we look at Gideon's story, um, God, and we're confronted with our fear of not being enough and not being acceptable, God, I just pray that we would just be absolutely overwhelmed, again, by your presence and by your power, and by your spirit, God, but we would be over, overwhelmed by your love for us that we see in Christ Jesus. So Jesus, I love you. We need you. This is always and only for your fame. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, Judges chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 11. We're introduced to this character named Gideon. So the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Oprah, not Winfrey, which belonged to Joash, the clan of Ebenezer. By the way, I'm so thankful that you laugh at the things that I say, because that's, you are hyping me like crazy. And you know what? I don't care. I'll just preach to you. This is going to be great. All right. So Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. Okay. So Gideon's threshing wheat, and threshing wheat, which I'm sure you all know what that is, but this is an activity where you would, you'd have like a pile of the wheat that had like the chaff that was kind of mixed in it, and you'd take a big pitchfork, and you, would t- and you would pick it up, and then you'd toss it in the air, and the wind would separate the wheat and the, the chaff. So the, the chaff is lighter, so the chaff would be blown away, and the wheat would fall to the ground, and, and that way you would collect the wheat, and you would eat it. Now, this is typically something that you would do outside because you need wind to be able to have this process work. Um, But Gideon is indoors. He's in a wine press. In fact, some commentaries say that the scene is so ridiculous that what Gideon is doing is he's actually picking up the the pile of, of wheat and chaff and he's tossing it in the air and with his own breath, he's like, because there's no wind inside. So why is he indoors? Because it doesn't work indoors. Well, the text tells us he's afraid. He's afraid of the Midianites. He's afraid they're going to find out that he's growing wheat. And and so now he's trying to separate it secretly. So Gideon's here. He's doing this, looking ridiculous. He's afraid. And who shows up in the middle of this? The angel of the Lord. Now, uh, when you see this, when you, when you see angel of the Lord showing up in the scriptures, this is a pre-incarnate Jesus. So uh, it, it's, uh, the theological term, it's a, it's a Christophany. It's basically Jesus showing up in some kind of manifestation, some form, pre-Bethlehem, so pre-Christmas Jesus. That's what this is showing up here. And listen to what he says to him in verse 12. He shows up and he says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Gideon, and said, mighty hero or mighty warrior, the Lord is with you. Okay, so Gideon, 
is afraid. He's doing life in secret. God shows up and says, hey, I'm with you. Big deal. B calls him mighty hero, mighty warrior. That's a pretty good day, right? God shows up to your spot, says, just so you know, I'm calling you mighty warrior and I'm with you. It's worth getting excited about. Not you guys, but I would be. Okay. <laughs> Listen, I'm coming after you. Here we go. All right, verse 13. Sir, Gideon replied, uh, which is a totally appropriate way to address an angel if they ever show up. Um, if the Lord is with us, this is a great question. Because this might be a question that some of you have asked in your moment of calamity and in your moment of fear and in your moment of oppression. He says, sir, if the Lord's with us, God, if you're so good, God, if you really love us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Where's all the stuff that shows up in this book, that shows up in God's people? Where's all that stuff in my life? It's an honest question. Didn't, didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt but now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. Gideon is doing what a lot of us do. Uh, we have this uh, notion that we can't be honest with God. Like, we, like there's certain things we can say to God and certain things we can't say to God. Certain things that we can say out loud and certain things we just have to kind of like stuff in. Gideon is super honest with God. He's like, you're supposed to be good. There's supposed to be miraculous things happening. And I'm not experiencing any of that. Our people are not experiencing any of that. So he's trying to, in essence, kind of reject the goodness of God. But I love that God gives him space to say this stuff. And, and, and God is trying to say, listen, that's why I'm here. Because I have something for you to do. I wonder if sometimes the prayers that we pray and the posture that we have towards God about why he doesn't do a thing or why he didn't do a thing, it could be because the thing that we want to see happen is because we've not stepped into it or leaned into the power of God that he has put in us to bring about the change that we want to see in our world. God might be saying to you, the thing that you've been praying about, the change that you want to see in your community, the change that you want to see in your family, the change that you want to see even in your own life, God's saying, you are the answer to it. I, I, I've already given you... And, and through your own habits and through your own choices and through your own lifestyle, I have given you the ability to see it through. We want to see changes in our world. We even want to see changes in ourselves. And God's saying, I have put my spirit in you. I have put resurrection power in you. I am with you. Go and do the good thing. I think, I think God has given some of you a dream or, or a passion or, or a heart and maybe even the opportunity for a good God-sized thing. You're just not stepping into it. And you're sitting back and you're like, God, how come this good thing is not happening? How come you're not using me? And God's saying, I'm with you. Step into it. it feels like another message, but... Verse 15, but Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? I'm, I'm afraid and hiding in this wine press. How am I 
going to rescue a whole nation. My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I'm the least in my entire family. And the Lord said to him, he's doubling down, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Gideon obeys, and what the scripture tells us is the very first thing that he does is he starts to tear down the idols that covered the countryside. So there were idols everywhere. We, we talked about Baal last night. There were idols to Baal. Um, people had adopted Baal. Baal never delivered God's people from anything, but yet they were worshiping him. The Israelites were trying to be just like the culture that surrounded them. They were supposed to be the set-apart community, but now here they are worshiping the very same false gods. So Gideon goes out in the night because he's got a little bit of courage, not a ton of courage. So he sneaks out in the middle of the night and he starts to tear down these idols um, because Gideon realizes something. There's no sense in going out and fighting against the Midianites. And even if I do defeat them, if we still have all of their idols standing up. So he went to the source of the problem. This is not the message, but this is something to just kind of write down and hold on to later. There is something to be said about the process of dismantling the altars to idols that you have in your life so that you can do what God has called you to do. God is calling you to battle but you got to deconstruct and deal with the idols and the altars to those idols that you've put up first. So Gideon, he's starting to kind of really feel himself. He starts to build an army because there's a job to do. But in the middle of this, and it's a really unique story, in the middle of this, Gideon kind of panics and he's second guessing what God has given him and what God has said to him. And he's like, okay, God, how do I know that you've really sent me? How do I know this is kind of work? I'm going to need some kind of sign for you. And we don't, we're not going to read this. We don't have time. But in the initial meeting where, that Gideon has with, with the Lord, um, give, they have their conversation, and Gideon's like, all right, I'm before the Lord. I need to make an offering to the Lord. So the angel of the Lord says, all right, I'm going to wait a little bit. I'm really busy. I'm the king of kings and the Alpha and Omega, but I'm going to sit here for a little bit, and you get the sacrifice together and all. So Gideon gets all the wood and the meat and the stuff that he needs, and he builds the altar, and he puts the stuff on there. But before he can light it, the angel of the Lord, who's carrying a staff uh, or a stick in his hand, he reaches out and he touches the sacrifice and flame shot out of the staff and he burned up the entire sacrifice on the altar. And Gideon is there and he's like, okay, I've seen God, I'm gonna die. And God's like, listen, if I would've killed you, I would've done it already, you're good. But Gideon has that moment with God previously. He has this miraculous moment. So God shows up, says, I'm with you, calls a mighty warrior, does the flamethrower thing over his altar. So Gideon has experienced all of that. But now in the middle of doing the thing that God has called him to do, he starts to freak out. And the principle there is that in the middle of your obedience, there's always going to be a point of crisis. In the middle of your obedience, there is always going to be a point of crisis. I was talking with a friend just the other day who's really trying to submit his dating life to the Lord. And just really trying to offer that up and just saying, okay, God, I want to humbly just submit that to you. And God, you you deal with that and you do with that whatever you want. But there is a moment it's like, well, nothing's really happening. <laughs> and so what if nothing happens for a long time? Because I've got like girls that are trying to talk to me and I want to go talk to them. I, I know they're not the type of girl that I should be dating, but 
God's not providing any other way or any other person. So if I don't, then will it ever happen? Real life, real stuff. In the middle of obedience, crisis will come. And you're going to start to question God. And you're going to start to question God's call in your life. Because now you're in it. And, and it's messy. And the temptation is to back out. Because there there's a pain point. There's a threshold. And you're like, okay, God, this is getting super uncomfortable. I, I, I have friendships that are not there because I'm trying to obey you. I have opportunities that I feel like I've missed out on because I wanted to obey you. There's certain things that I kind of thought that I wanted and because I'm trying to live according to the way that you've prescribed for me to live, God, I feel like I'm missing out and there's a pain point. And at that point, you are going to be tempted to say, God, wait a minute, did I really get, did I get that clear? Did you really say that? And the temptation is going to be to back out. And so Gideon, what he does is he asks for a sign. And in the story, we're not going to read it. You should read it. We refer to it in kind of church world, uh, Christian circles, as putting out a fleece. And again, consider what happened. So Gideon had seen the flamethrower from the angel of the Lord. But now he goes through this whole exercise and he's like, all right, I'm going to put some dry wool out. And, and if the grass is wet and the wool is dry, or if the wool is wet and the grass is dry, then I can believe you. And so... God is patient with him. He, he goes through the thing with him. Gideon gets his sign, so now he starts to put his army together. And that's where we are in chapter seven. So flip over to chapter seven. So Gideon now, he has the clarity that he's needed from God. There's two particular moments, right? So angel of the Lord has a moment there. He does the fleece thing. He starts to build his army in chapter seven, verse one. So Jerob Baal, that's Gideon. That means Baal destroyer. And his army got up early and went as far as the spring of Herod. The armies of Midian were camped north of them in the valley near the hill, hill of Moresh. So Gideon has assembled 32,000 soldiers. So remember, the Midian army is 135,000 soldiers. So he still doesn't have enough, but he's got enough confidence because God said a thing to him and God has done this stuff to him. So he's like, okay, 32,000 soldiers, not great, but I'm trusting God. You know, and, and he's feeling better because of what he has with him. He's feeling better because of the resources that he has assembled. So look what God does. Verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. God's like, that's way too much, Gideon. Gideon's like, I don't think your math is quite right. I'm at least 100,000 short of what I should have. You have too many soldiers with you. You have too many warriors. If I, if I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. Therefore, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. So things just went from like bad to way worse for Gideon. There's only 10,000 now against 135,000. Gets a little bit more interesting. Verse four, but the Lord told Gideon, still too many. So bring them down to the spring and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. And when Gideon took his warriors down to the water, the Lord said to them, said to him, divide the men into two groups. In one group, put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it up with their tongues like dogs. And in the other group, put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths in the stream. So 
a lot of commentators, and, and I don't know if this is exactly what it was, it was so strategic, but they would say like, those who like got on their hands and knees and put their whole face like in the river, <laughs> like that's not a very good posture to be ready. Like if you get attacked, like you're gonna get like stabbed in the top of the head cause you're down your face down the river. And the other guys, like if you were kneeled down and you were like cupping water like this, you could have one hand on your sword and one hand kind of cupping water. I don't know that that's necessarily what God had in mind here. I think what God is really just trying to do is he's just trying to really just whittle down the thing that Gideon had put his faith in. Is that going to preach to anybody in the room? Right. Okay. Where are we? Verse, okay, verse, verse seven. So they got 300 men. And the Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Mennonites. Send all the other home. So Gideon collected the provisions and the ram's horns of the other warriors and he sent them home, but he kept the 300 men with him. And the Midian camp was in the valley just below Gideon. So he's got 300 and he's going to battle. I, I want to stop here because we're going to see how this story applies to our lives. I'm going to try to put it directly in your kitchen. There's one more verse um, that I want to give you and we'll kind of move forward. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to a young man, Timothy. Timothy was in the ministry, but he was young, um, and, and people kind of gave him a hard time for being young. And so Timothy is kind of insecure about this, but listen what Paul writes to him. He says, God has not given you a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. Some versions will say of a sound mind. Um, have you ever had somebody ask you, like, hey, where'd you, where'd you get that? Like, there's something that you bought. Like, hey, where'd you get those shoes? Or, hey, where'd you get that purse? Or, hey, where, where, where'd you get that? You ever had somebody ask you that? Like, hey, where'd you, where'd you get that? I was at a conference once. It was a young adult kind of college conference in the, in the South. Um, and people in the South are not super bright. Um, I'm from the South, so I can say that. Um, but I had bought, uh, I bought a euro. So everyone knows what a euro is. You're all like super cultured. You all, of course, know what euros are. <laughs> so I bought a euro and I was standing there and I'm eating the euro and there was a guy in front of me and he turned around and he goes, where'd you get that burrito cone? I was like, it's not a burrito cone, it's a euro. And he's like, never heard of it. Like, it doesn't matter. Um, but we have that question. We have that question of people will say, well, hey, where'd you get that? All right, so I've got a question. And it's going to shape what we wrestle with for the next little bit here. And I want you to, well, okay, here's the question. You're listening? Where'd you get that fear? All right, turn to the person next to you and ask him, where'd you get that fear? Okay, turn to the person on the other side. Where'd you get that fear? genetic okay where'd you get that fear because it wasn't from God and when we talk about fear today I want to talk specifically about insecurity insecurity is a lack of self-confidence it's a fear of not being enough or having enough or doing enough it's an uneasiness a doubt about your worth or your value or a doubt about your place in this world 
It's a feeling of I don't have what it takes. I don't have enough of what is needed. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough talent. I'm not tall enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't have the right look. I don't have the right friends. I don't have the right opportunities. Insecurity is feeling like you don't have what it takes. And because you don't have what it takes, you are not safe in the world. And so you are afraid. And it leads to all kinds of pretending or hiding or just curating a very special way that like we have to show up in the world because if people really knew you and really knew what you struggled with, you wouldn't be accepted. Insecurity is feeling like all the harsh words that has been spoken over you might actually be true. It's a feeling like you've done the wrong things or the wrong things done to you have damaged you beyond repair and you are no longer useful or valuable. Like you see yourself as damaged goods. That is insecurity. It's a feeling like you are unqualified or inadequate, like life is just over your head and you just don't stack up. I don't know if that's landing on anybody here, um, but I want you to know that I have struggled with insecurity for most of my life, uh, in fact, all the way up to this current moment right now here in this room. I probably felt this the most acutely early in my middle school years. Middle school is brutal. It's terrible. Uh, you probably can't tell, but I was a pretty short kid. Um, I had uh, like gappy teeth, still do, and big Coke bottle glasses, which is perfect for middle school. Uh, my family was fairly poor, so all my haircuts were done by my dad, uh, which would be great if he was a barber, but he's not. <laughs> works in construction. Um, and he, uh, he used something. I don't know if you can still get this, but you can Google this because this is a real device. But he used something called a Floby, which is like uh, clippers that you hook to a vacuum cleaner somehow. So like hair clippers. And the whole idea is that I don't have hair now. Maybe this is why. But like the vacuum would like suck up your hair, it would like pull up your hair and then the clippers would like cut it. So I had a lot of terrible haircuts uh, for <laughs> most of my growing up life. And so I didn't feel super awesome about how I looked. Um, and then because we were fairly poor, we moved around a lot. Um, and sometimes that was because we got evicted, which is rough for a kid. Uh, sometimes we needed to move because uh, we needed somewhere less expensive. In fact, at one point, um, we lived in this like little room. It was kind of like a hotel room that was attached to the office building that the church that we went to. So I basically like lived, our family, there's six of us, we lived in a church office building. Um, by the time I got to high school, I was a fairly decent uh, athlete. I was on the wrestling team, which there's nothing better for an insecure freshman boy to be in a wrestling singlet. That felt great all the time. Um, and so, but, but being an athlete kind of felt like a way to like hide my insecurity. It became kind of like a thing that I had that could hide like how insecure I felt. And then um, because I was fairly decent, uh, like the seniors on the team would start taking me to parties and I actually realized that like, oh, I'm actually better at partying than I am at sports. So that became a way to deal with my insecurity for like the next decade or so, high school and college, just getting super drunk and making fun of people. That was what I was like pretty good at. Um, God saved me after college. After a year of Bible college, I ended up in the church world, pastoral ministries. And the good news is no pastors ever struggle with insecurity. So that was great for me. <laughs> That's a lie. We're some of the worst on the whole planet. This is kind of therapeutic for me. I don't know what it's doing for you guys, but I've, like, <clears throat> I've kind of liked to go through this journey a little bit. Um, here's the thing. We all in our lives have ways that we cope and deal with this. We have different masks 
that we wear. We have different ways that we all deal with our own insecurities. Some of us, like we've picked up this mask of like, we're just like always angry or kind of like prickly. And so, and if we have to feel small, we're going to try to make other people feel small too. Others, we just kind of disengage. We just shut down. We just kind of totally withdraw. We're very isolated. We just pretend like we don't care what anybody thinks. We're like, I could have friends if I want to, but friends are dumb. I don't want friends. I could go to that party if I want to. Parties are dumb. I don't care if I ever get invited. Or we just make everything a joke. Or we try to compensate with stuff or money or career or another person. That's really awesome when you are like insecure and you use other people because you're insecure and you just rifle through people because you can't deal with your own fear and your own security. Or we try to run, we try to like one up everybody's stories or like name drop because we need to be validated. And here's why because we're not sure that anyone really cares about knowing us. And we're looking for something. We're on a quest to be cared for. We're on a quest to be wanted or to be loved. It's why we, we have to post the perfect pictures or we have to post the imperfect pictures so that everyone knows we don't care if you don't think we're perfect. We have to let everybody know that we're cool with not being so cool. The thing about insecurity, and you know this if you're an insecure person like me, is that it's exhausting. It might be the the, the only thing that more draining than being around an insecure person is actually being an insecure person. Because when you live out of your insecurities, you can't enjoy anything. Okay, so what is Gideon going to teach us about how to deal with our insecurities? And we're going to try to move through this fairly quickly. We could start to be okay with who God made us and who we are in him. And we don't have to live these lives where we try to measure up and we won't live identified by the wounds and the failures of our past. And we could live out of the freedom that we have no one to impress and nothing to prove as a child of the most high God. Like if we could do that, if we could do that, then maybe we could actually focus on making other people feel seen and known and loved rather than spending all of our time to try to get people to make us feel seen and feel important. All right, so what are we going to see with Gideon that's going to help us in this? I'm going to try to make this super practical for you guys because I need help with this, and I think there's a lot of you in the room who do as well. When we're introduced to Gideon, he's scared to death because he doesn't think he's capable. Life is really hard. He doesn't think that he has anything in him that can measure up to be significant. What's interesting is that like when you look at this theme of insecurity, there are several characters throughout the scripture that you could choose. There's Moses. Moses is like, I can't go because I've got a speech impediment. You can't use me, God. Jeremiah is like, who am I? I'm nothing. Esther Esther has a past that she's like, if anybody finds out about my past, they're not going to accept me. Peter, John the Baptist, John the Baptist. God says there is nobody who's fit to to do his sandals, right? Jesus says, John the Baptist, I've not met anybody like John the Baptist. And John the Baptist kind of towards the end of his life, he's sitting there, he's like, was this really what I was supposed to be doing? Like there's an insecurity in, in, in him. But what we learned from Gideon, what I've learned and what I would need to be reminded of even today, and this is our first point, the cure to insecurity is knowing your true identity. The cure to insecurity is knowing your true identity. 
That is to say, when you know who you are, it doesn't matter who you are not. When you know who you are, it doesn't matter who you are not. You see, our culture wants us to live in this constant place of who we are not. It's reinforced everywhere. You're not. You don't have enough. You're not. You don't have this. But when you live in and out of who you are, it doesn't really matter who you are not. And if you're struggling to know who you are, well, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are loved and prized by majesty. You are called and adopted by God Almighty. You are given purpose and grafted into his design and his plan. You are loved by God. You are loved by God. Okay, now your turn. I want you to say, I am loved by God. All right, now say it like like you believe it this time. I am loved by God. That's why he made you. That's why he saved you. That's why he shed the blood of his son. That's why he filled you with his Holy Spirit. That's why he put you in his family. That's why he's given you a calling because you are loved by God. Paul writes to the Thessalonian church, he says in 2 Thessalonians, like, as for us, we can't help but thank God for you, dear brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. And we're always thankful that God chose you. We're gonna get into that in just a second to be among the first to experience salvation, the salvation that came through the Spirit who makes you holy and through your belief in the truth. When you feel insecure, there's three questions you need to ask yourself. You write these down if you're writing things down. There's three questions to ask yourself when you are feeling insecure. Who do I say that I am? Who do I say that I am? What is the prevailing narrative about myself that I am telling myself constantly? Like, who do you think you are? Who do I say that I am? That's the first question. The second question you need to ask yourself when you're feeling insecure is who or what does God say that I am? Who who does God say that I am? And then the third question is, who do I believe? Who can I trust more? What's a more credible source in my story? Myself or God? And also, can I just tell you something? God did not get stuck with you. He chose you because you're adopted and he knows everything about you. He knows what you've done. He knows what you will do. He knows what's been done to you. He knows and he pursued and he chose you and he loves you like crazy. I've got three biological kids and I had no idea what I was going to get with them. Their wife is, their wife, my wife is pretty great. Um, I hope their wife is great. Well, my son's wife. Um, so I had, we had like a 50-50 shot that they were going to turn out okay, because she's pretty awesome. But adopted kids, you know everything about them. You know their story. You know what you are getting. God adopted you. You are not a white elephant gift to God. It wasn't like he unwrapped it. He's like, oh, what is this? He's like, oh, well, that's great. (laughs) He wasn't unsure 
about what he was getting. He chose you knowing everything about you. And he has never in your entire life been shocked by what you've done. The cure for your insecurity is found in knowing your true identity. The second thing, comparison kills contentment. Comparison kills contentment. We are supposed to be content with who we are, but constant comparison kills that, and it robs us of contentment because it takes our eyes off of Jesus. When God shows up to Gideon, he says, Gideon, you are a mighty hero. You are a mighty warrior. True identity. It's what God calls him. And whatever God calls you is your true identity. Whatever comes out of the mouth of God about you is all that matters. And God says, you are a mighty warrior. But Gideon objects. Why does he object? In, in, in chapter 6, verse 15, let me read the thing. But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue you? My, my clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh. I'm the least in my entire family. I'm the least of the tribes. He takes his eyes off of the Lord and he begins to compare himself with the other tribes. He takes his focus off of what the Lord has said to him and what God has called him to. And now he's thinking of everyone else. There's bigger and better tribes than mine. And he's thinking about even in the, peop the people in his own family. He's like, there's even people more qualified in my own family. And he's thinking of all the other people that God should have gone to besides him. And by comparison, he ruins his contentment. And listen, we do the exact same thing. Don't just listen to some Bible story that's disconnected from reality like it doesn't apply to you because we carry around with us in our pockets all the time discontentment devices so that in any moment when we need a shot of discontentment, we can just scroll and compare ourselves to everyone else. I'm not as pretty as her. I don't look like her. I don't have as much money as him. My vacation wasn't as awesome as theirs. Theirs wasn't either, by the way. My friends aren't as cool as these people. And we, hit, we are so sick with this because we hit like even though we hate them. And I'm telling you, like pastors, ministry people, we are just as sick with this, if not more. It's actually gross. We can kill our contentment. All we have to do is compare ourselves to someone else. So what's the solution? Well, you see it actually in, in verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, go with the strength that you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I'm sending you. Can I just encourage you? The Lord turned to Gideon because Gideon had turned away. Do you know that's God's posture to you? God's posture towards you is that he's turning towards you because we are the ones who turn from him. And God, all through the scriptures, and today is turning towards you. 
despite your failures, despite your addictions, despite your brokenness and messiness, despite your rebellion, God turns towards you even when you've turned away. And God says, go in the strength that you have. He says, listen, go do the thing that I've called you to do in the strength that you have, not in the strength that you don't have. Listen, if I wanted someone in another tribe, I would have gone to them. I went to you, the least in your family, because I have plans for you. I gave you the gifts that I have given you for a reason. I didn't call you to do what somebody else is supposed to do. If I wanted an army of stormtroopers, I would have got one guy and cloned him and got a massive army together. But I've assembled a family, and it's a family that has all kinds of different people with different abilities and different talents and different passions and different personalities and different gifts, and they look different and they talk different. But God is saying, everyone in my family is equally loved and cherished. They have a unique role and purpose, so don't compare yourself to them because I have something specific for them and something specific for you. God is saying, I don't want you to think about what you're missing. Think about what I have given you because when you are weak, I am very, very strong. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let there be light in the darkness has made this light shine in our hearts so that we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. And we now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. And it makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. Plus, when we compare ourselves to other people, we forget that those people that we are jealous about are also insecure in certain ways too. Uh, Beth Moore is an author. She wrote a book called uh, Goodbye Insecurity, You've Been a Terrible Friend. But she has this quote, and she says, Be careful of who you covet. Nobody is unbreakable here on this planet. Only the dead don't bleed when they are cut. We are all, we all fear that we aren't who we are pretending to be. Let me read that again. We all fear that we aren't who we are pretending to be. That's what keeps us up at night. That someone will find out that we are not who we are pretending to be. God picked Gideon on purpose. He knew Gideon looked ridiculous in the wine press threshing wheat. Gideon's from the smallest tribe. He's the weakest in his family. And God looks at him and God looks at you. It's like, ah, they're mine. That's who I want. That's who I want. He knows everything about you and he chose you. Comparison kills contentment. Next, whatever you look to for validation has to keep giving you affirmation. Whatever you look to for validation has to keep giving you affirmation. So be careful about the source that you pick for validation. Don't pick a source that will run out. You need to pick something or someone that is sustainable. If you look to your looks for validation, I hate to break it to you. I know you're all invincible right now, but it eventually falls apart. If you look to money or success or fame, or influence, or recognition, or anything else, it fades, it erodes, it ends. It will give a quick fix. In the short term, it does provide. It scratches that itch, that's true. There is something to be said 
for feeling kind of low, feeling kind of bad. You buy something, it gets the attention of somebody else. They hype you up. That feels good. And there's lots of things like that. There's lots of things that will give you a short-term little boost, but they all come with a hangover. Some of them like a literal hangover. (laughs) I mean, who doesn't want to get admired or appreciated or recognized? We all want that. And there are a ton of temporary things that will do that for you. But listen to me. Those things are dangerous to us, not because they don't work, but because they work so well. And that's why you and I will keep going to those things for validation. And we'll keep squeezing them and squeezing them and squeezing them. And we will become more and more and more enslaved to them. Success is not the solution to insecurity. We all have experiences of getting what we wanted and that well dried up because once you get it, now you have to keep it. And it has to keep performing for you. And nothing can work long-term under that pressure. And if you've played this game with buying stuff or going from relationship to relationship to relationship to relationship or whatever upgrades that you've made to your life, when you depend on that stuff or those people or that experience, it's exhausting. And maybe you haven't spent enough time on that journey, but if you talk to some of us older people in the room, we will tell you it wears you out. You need to keep your value in something that is less vulnerable. Do you hear that? Have your value based in something that's less vulnerable than how you look or what you have or who you're with. It's why Jesus says, don't store up treasure for yourself here where it can be stolen or where it can decay or moths can eat it. Lay up your treasure for yourself in heaven and find your value in what the king of heaven has said over you and what he's done for you and what he's given you. True security is when you move from placing your hope and identity in what you have to who has you and what you have in him. When you can be rooted in and saturated in the reality of being a blood-bought son or daughter of God, when you put your value in being his, not based on what you've done, but based on his steadfast, never-changing love for you, when you get to that place, we can journey through life and come what may, fear does not have the final word in your story, he does. And you can enjoy the blessing of God and you can endure the pain of this world and not be defined by those experiences. Henry Nouwen says, if you know that you are beloved to God, you can live with an enormous amount of success and an enormous amount of failure without losing your identity because your identity is that you are the beloved. And the longer that you sit in this, the more that you stay in this, you are more and more and more convinced that your belovedness is not at risk. That is the sweet spot of life with God. Last thing, we're just done. It takes bravery for vulnerability, but vulnerability leads to victory. It takes bravery for vulnerability. There is a reason that we are not vulnerable because it is scary. I know that. I experience that. It takes bravery and courage 
for vulnerability, but vulnerability is the way to victory. You see this in Gideon, chapter seven, he's called by God, he builds this army, and then God does this crazy thing where he whittles it down and he whittles it down and he whittles it down. And God is removing the thing that was, that was his strength. God called him mighty warrior, but he felt like he was the least. And in that in-between, he tried to earn what he thought a mighty warrior would look like. He tried to earn that title that God had already given him. A mighty warrior has to have a big army, has to have something to show off. But what made him a mighty warrior was that a mighty God was with him. And what makes you who you are is that God calls you son or daughter and God is with you. And just to prove God's power, God gives him the craziest way ever to fight this battle. We don't have time to read it, but they basically get a bunch of torches and clay pots and they go up kind of on this rim and they smash the pots and they got the torches and they scream out uh, and the battle belongs to the Lord and, it, and God wins the fight. It's crazy. The Midianites all start kind of fighting each other and 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 Gideon leads this 300 men to defeat the army. But Gideon has to be vulnerable to see the victory that God is gonna win on his behalf. He has to go with only 300 men. He has to fight with torches and clay pots against this massive military. And it's not easy to be vulnerable, but the only way to experience victory is through vulnerability, being known, being open, in the garden, Adam and Eve, they sin against God. They hear God coming and they do what you do and they do what I do. They hide. They are aware of their guilt. They're aware of their nakedness and their shame. Just like some of you, you cannot get away from your shame. And whatever you, you try to drink it away, you try to sleep it away, you try to smoke it, you, whatever, you try to spend it away, you try to pretend, but you cannot get away from it. And so you are hiding. And in these days, God is coming after you. Because that's what he does here. God walks to them. Now you think God can't win at hide and go seek he can win <laughs> but he goes and he's kind he woos them he says where are you guys we used to go on walks together all the time you missed our appointment today where are you who told you who told you that you were naked and that you should be afraid and so God provides for them just like God provides for you and he clothes them, and he covers their shame, and they do have to leave the garden. But God pursues people all through the pages of the Bible and all through human history, and I believe that God is pursuing you right now where you are. And God goes to Gideon, the least of his tribe, because God wasn't in, interested in Gideon's strength. God wants to show off his strength. And in your life, when you hide behind whatever you are propping up as strength, you will not see the power of God in your life. When you hide behind what you want everybody else to see as your strength, you will not see the power of God in your life. 
It took vulnerability for Gideon to be himself and just show up with what God had given him and to not be afraid and to not hide. And if you live that way, people will claw at you and attack you. But when you live out of and live in faith that we are who God says we are, we will see that the battle belongs to the Lord. Can I give you just one last word of freedom? One last word. Look at me. Look at me. If God didn't give it to you, you don't have to keep it. If God didn't give it to you, you don't have to keep it. God did not give you a spirit of fear. God did not give you that insecurity. God did not give you that feeling of not being enough. That is not from God. You don't have to keep it because you have been given a spirit of power and love and of a sound mind. So can I just invite you to do something that could change your life? Leave the fear here. Leave it. You do not have to carry that around anymore. Leave that here. Paul wrote to young Timothy, and I think God is saying to you and to me, quite frankly, you don't have to live in the fear of not being enough. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to hide and lie. You don't have to be fake. You don't have to put on all the things that the culture tells you that you have to. And you don't have to wear masks. And you don't have to live behind walls that you build up. The word spirit in the Greek, it's pneuma. It's translated breath. It's, it's literally the, it's the wind. God did not breathe fear into you. God breathes into you life, the Holy Spirit, a new creation, a resurrected life. He breathes into us what we need to be secure in him and a force for good in the world in the fame of Jesus. God did not give you that fear. So you don't have to keep it. But what he did give you, take hold of it and ask for more because he's a generous father. And he will give you more of what you need. He will give you more awareness of his love, more of his power, more of his mind. And so in these days, I believe that God wants to visit you in your place of fear and hiding. I believe that God is speaking to you. Where are you? Because I am here for you. You can come out from whatever you're hiding behind. You don't have to be afraid. I believe that he wants you to hear his voice speak to you and call out to you into a purpose that is so much more than just getting likes because you are loved and prized by majesty. I want to I give you just a moment to respond to this. So if you would just close your eyes, bow your head again. This is not a nothing magical about this posture. It just helps us to not be distracted in this moment. It helps us to clearly hear from God. And this might be super goofy for for some of you, but I want you in this moment to just breathe out the fear, the insecurity, the stuff that nobody else knows about but it haunts you like crazy. Can I 
just tell you, God knows it. He's not afraid of it. He's not shocked by it. He's not turning away from you. He is turning towards you right now. Just, Lord, I'm just breathing out what I'm afraid of. I'm breathing out this insecurity. I'm breathing out this feeling of I'm not enough or I'm, I've done too much. I'm damaged goods. I'm breathing that out. And then I want you to just breathe in that God is enough and that God is for you and not against you. Romans 8 says, what are we going to say? If God's for us, who or what can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, that's how much God loves you. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also give us his Holy Spirit? How will he not also give us his breath to breathe in, to know that we are loved by him? We are sons and daughters of the Most High. We're going to sing this confession of who God is and what he has done. And we, collectively as a community, we are going to leave that fear right here. Because God did not give us that. So we don't have to keep carrying it. Lord, would you speak to us just now? Holy Spirit, I pray that you just continue to move and speak. God, break down strongholds. Set us free.